Open to Romans 9, verse 30, if you have a Bible with you. Romans 9. We're only going to take a, a, a short look today at Romans 9, 30 through 10, chapter 10, verse 4. Christ is the cornerstone. Let's read that passage real quick and then we'll pray. Romans 9.30, these are the words of God. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And chapter 10, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and gracious God, we thank you for your word and for the fact that we can assemble like this today, albeit illegally. We rejoice in that. Father, we, we live in troubling times as people are trying to build an edifice on the cornerstone that's not Christ. Help us to seek your face, to be revived by your law, and be comforted by your gospel. In Christ's name I pray, amen. amen. So today we're going to look at uh, Romans 9.30 uh, through 10.4, as I mentioned. And the reason that I chose this shorter section uh, is because this section is very much a key moment in Paul's larger explanation of Romans 9-11. through 11. If you ever, ever spend time memorizing scripture or just trying to get your bearings when it comes to, okay, where does that passage again? Oh yeah, Psalm 23. You know, if, if you spend time trying to almost put hooks on the wall where you can hang your hat so you know where things are in Scripture, if you've ever done that and familiarized yourself with Scripture, oftentimes it can create this mental picture in your mind and you just kind of go there in your mind and you know, oh yes, Genesis 12, that's when Abraham was called. Oh yes, Genesis 22 is is the, the great covenant moment with Isaac on the mountain. And you start to almost like put a pin there so that you know where these things are in the Bible. And when you consider Romans, for example, as a whole, Romans 9, 10, and 11 are very much this, it's this very much integrated unit. And honestly, it just sticks out like a sore thumb. So when you think of Romans in your mind, just visually, Romans 9, 10, and 11, it sticks out. This is like the center of, of Paul's explanation of his, of his letter. And you should know that it's not as if the rest of the letter is unimportant or less important or generally disconnected. That's not true at all. Romans 9 through 11 is simply this major mountaintop journey in the letter. So in large part, we have to kind of deal with Romans 9, 10, and 11 as a whole. So... My intention is to next week cover the next section, and then after that I want to do just a Christmas devotional type message um, about Christmas being the dawn of hope. And um, so then we'll kind of come back after the new year and finish out this section. Um, but, but if you want to spend time, read 9, 10, and 11. Just sit down and read those three chapters a few times. 
and try to gather, try to gather the, the mindset because it's very hard to, to uh, pull it all together when you, only, you, know, you can only do so much in one sitting. So Paul, he drives home his main point here in Romans, uh, in this section here. God's covenant with Israel has been broken by Israel repeatedly, as the parable that Matt read illustrates. When Israel broke covenant with God, part of God's punishment for them, his sanctions against them, was to take them out of the land. He had told them hundreds and hundreds of years before that through Moses that had they disobeyed, God would take them out of the land. They would be gone. The land was the promised land for a reason. And if they wouldn't fall in line, so to speak, the rank and file, then they would be escorted off the premises, as it were. And they were taken into Babylon, and that was this great exile. But then, as Old Testament history closes out, it wasn't like the exile was over. It felt over. Nehemiah had come. They tried to rebuild the wall. But up until the time of Christ, everything was still disoriented. <laughs> Nobody had a clue. Um, when's God going to act again? Ezekiel saw God's spirit leave the temple. When's the temple going to be rebuilt? When's God's spirit coming back? Those are the themes that we have to think through when we read the New Testament. So they were sent into exile. And, um, and Jordan and I were talking about this last week. There's this passage in Ezekiel 37, verses 15 through 22, where the tribes of Israel, Israel, remember, was the northern kingdom, and uh, you had the southern kingdom of Judah, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Those were Solomon's sons who decided to have a fight and break the kingdom up. But there were these kingdoms that were lost. Assyria had sacked uh, Israel in 722 B.C., and then about 150 years later in 586, Babylon had destroyed the southern kingdom. So historically speaking, those tribes were lost, the northern tribes. Things, they, they ended up becoming part of the Samaritan uh, folks who lived in the north. But Judah was kind of the central focus. Jerusalem's there. And we also know from Genesis that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. So there was a lot of prom, um, promises that were attached to that. So Ezekiel promises that there was this great plan that God would bring those nations back together in this great new covenant. So that was part of his vision in Ezekiel 37. And the promise of covenant renewal is from Deuteronomy 30, which we'll spend time in next week. But that's the thrust of this passage. These are all echoes of Scripture that Paul's using. So if you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament, you might not be able to you know, piece it together. It might be somewhat confusing. So God had promised, in other words, God had promised to heal Israel and the nations, and Jesus the Messiah is the one who's going to do it. So let's just walk through our passage. I'll read and comment as I go. Paul states in verse 30, this is a question we've seen before, what shall we say then? What shall we say then? In other words, in light of the aforementioned citations from Hosea and Isaiah, what gives? He says, what, what's the point of what I've been saying? He goes on, that Gentiles, by the way, the word Gentiles there is ethne, and it means nations. It's the same Greek word in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, when Jesus tells us to go disciple the nations. Some translators, for whatever reason, decide to translate it um, Gentiles, but it simply means nations. But the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, he says, have attained it. That is a righteousness by faith. So non-Israelites, 
outside of the covenant, not in covenant with Yahweh, who practice their spiritual, uh, they practice their paganism with little spiritual qualms. They were fine with it. Somehow, Paul says, they have received righteousness. Now, righteousness, and I'll come back to this later, but righteousness is this idea of covenant membership, and it's a status by faith. Righteousness is a status by faith. And we already saw earlier that Jesus was the faithful Messiah. He was the faithful, faithful Israelite. So when you believe on Jesus by faith, by trusting him, you have the same status. You have the covenant membership. That's the righteousness. So the nations, he says, weren't looking around for the righteousness of God. They weren't looking for it at all. But guess what? The righteousness found them. When, when Christ died and was raised, they weren't looking for it, but they got it. It was theirs by faith. Verse 31. But that Israel, we have the opposite issue here, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead, a Torah that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. So the opposite happened for unbelieving Israel. The, the very thing that they were seeking, they didn't find it. The, the nations weren't looking and they found it. Israel was looking and they didn't find it. The opposite problem. Israel clung to the law and the tighter they clung, the more lost they got. The more lost they got. This is because membership in the covenant is not done by works. It's not done by ethnic privilege. Membership in the covenant, the, the, if you're baptized here today and you're in the covenant, that membership is not even with the baptism. It's what the baptism represents. Christ. God has brought you to himself. So that's the membership. Now, being in covenant with God would be by Torah if it were possible, just like, just like the, the Torah, the law of God, would give life if it could. But it can't. The, law, the stone tablets, does, they don't bring life to people. The spirit inside you takes the Torah and puts it in you. That brings you life. Now, similar to the problem of pietism that cripples much of evangelicalism today, mere zeal for the things of God isn't what makes you right with God. Um, we, we are a zealous bunch. We like to get into godly mischief, generally. Uh, we are purveyors of troublemaking. That's what we do. But just so we know, that, that sort of thing isn't what makes us right with God. All right, That's not what makes us... When we're right with God, then we can go do those things. But that's not, we're not doing it in the name of, I'm going to defy tyrants because God looks upon me fondly when I do so. Well, he may. <laughs> we know from Psalm 2, he sits in the heavens and laughs at Governor Newsom, for example, and others who you know, create laws out of thin air for you, but then they themselves don't abide by it. That's funny to God, and we should laugh at that too and probably make fun of it at every turn. <laughs> so meme away. That's the Bible's exhortation. Um, but but we don't, we're not made right by God by that. Why, Paul asks in verse 32, why is this the case? Why is it the opposite thing here? Gentile nations, they weren't looking for righteousness. They found it. Israel was looking for it. They didn't find it. Why is that the case? Because, he says, they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Israel didn't attain what they were looking for because they didn't use the law the way it was intended. 
The law of God is meant to be wielded by faith and nothing else. It's meant to be wielded by faith. If keeping the law isn't done on the basis of faith, then it's done on the basis of something else, which means that it's an abuse or a misuse of the law. So covenant membership in this gospel thing we call uh, the kingdom, covenant membership, does, it does involve attaining the law. It does involve us attaining the law, obeying it from a changed heart. That's part of it. But the only way to do it properly is to have a newly regenerated heart by the Holy Spirit himself. And that's based on the work of Christ, who is the cornerstone. That's where he's going to go next. So the, so the use of the law is only accomplished by faith. Anything else is a misuse. Verse 33. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now this is uh, a quotation from two places in Isaiah, Isaiah 28:16 and Isaiah 8:14. In both contexts, the main promise has to do with the Messiah, the stone, the Messiah is the stone, establishing a new temple which consists of his newly formed people. That's the context of Isaiah. The stumbling stone here is the Messiah himself. And to believe on him by faith, Paul says, quoting Isaiah, is to be established in him. However, that same cornerstone, if you reject him, he becomes what? A stone of stumbling. You trip over him. So that's the judgment. For, the, for rebellious people, the stone is an offense. It's an entrapment. Christ is, is an entrapment for some people. Not in a tricky, mischievous way where you try to play a prank on someone. But he's there. He's an offense to people. For the faithful, though, he's a firm foundation. Romans 10, verses 1 through 2. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So the apostle has already stated and shown that his heart... He's shown his heart in the very beginning of Romans 9. But here he repeats himself, another solemn moment. He says his desire and prayer is for unbelieving Israel to be saved, to be delivered from the clutches of sin by the Messiah. That's his prayer. We're we're talking about a guy who experienced that, who was delivered from the clutches of sin by the Messiah. Someone who was chasing down Christians putting them on trial, trying to get them executed off the face of the earth. That's Paul. He's a broken man. We see his heart here. Their problem, he laments, their problem, unbelieving Israel's problem, is zeal without knowledge. Zeal without knowledge. They have this burning desire to honor God. They want God to be honored in their nation. They have this burning desire to see His law upheld in the world. They want to see justice established. They want to see righteousness prevail. Yet, he says, they're ignorant. They're ignorant. Why are they ignorant? They lack vital knowledge about who Jesus is. You can't establish justice uh, apart from the gospel, he says. Verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. There are three references in one verse to 
righteousness. It's a word that keeps coming up in the book of Romans. The phrase is dekaiosenetheu, it's the righteousness of God. There's different cognates of the word. A lot of it, sometimes he means justice in terms of what is just and right. Sometimes it refers to God and his faithful, faithfulness to his people. But three times he brings up righteousness here. So instead of seeing Christ as being the revelation of the righteousness of God, they actually did something different. Paul says they sought to establish their own righteousness. That is, they believed in a covenant status on their own terms. In other words, they rejected covenant history as it came to fruition in Messiah. The parable that Matt read. All of the parables are basically a full frontal assault on the prevailing views of Jesus' day. All of them. They are a, a rhetorical, metaphorical, hyperbolic, even a visual. You think of the, the farmer sowing seeds, right? He, he uses agriculture. They are a full-on frontal assault against the religious leaders of the day. And every single time he uses them, he wields them in such a way to basically say, look, all of history is coming to me now. Jesus says, Everything that the prophets promised, everything from Genesis to the end of Malachi, all of Old Testament history comes to me right now. And what did they do? They made sure the Romans took care of the job and killed him. That's Paul's point. You, you can't reject all of history and then say that Jesus is irrelevant to history when he's the sovereign one over history. So God's work in Christ is the same work that he had repeatedly done throughout the Old Testament. And instead of embracing it, they went about it their own way. Which way was that? Well, he says covenant membership became inward focused. In other words, they wanted God on their own terms. The badge of belonging to the people of God was always by grace through faith based on Christ's person and work. It's always what it is. Why are you a Christian today, church? Not, not because, oh, I was so smart, I figured it out. <laughs> Why are you a Christian? Because Christ died for me. He was raised for me. Grace through faith, period. That's what it always is. But the badge that they had chosen was Torah, the law, a misuse of the law. So the law was always to be obeyed by faith, and it would then in turn impress the rest of the world. Uh, that's from Deuteronomy 4. To obey it by not faith, by unbelief, is to impugn the law and become not impressive on the world stage. The world, you want to you impress our county? Let's impress them with the wisdom from God's word. There's a lot of angry people right now, rightfully so, frustrated. Um, a point I've been emphasizing since March, the very beginning of March when all of this stuff happened, is the end goal was always some sort of medical tyranny. It was always that. It was always that. And they'll say things like, well, Biden tried to say this in, in Biden's you know, normal, incoherent state. He was trying to say, well, no, we can't mandate it, but we're, basically he was saying, we're going to try. You have to really decipher. It's a translation thing. And so pretty soon that's probably what they're going to do. They're going to end up trying. You can't fly anywhere unless you have this passport. You can't do all these things. And we should be outraged, and we ought to be. And more people should be outraged, and they're not. But when you deal with, like, when you deal with these types of things, 
we, we have to hold to the gospel in this. We have to hold to God's law. We have to. Because if we're just throwing a hissy fit, well, we're not really doing anybody any favors. But if you want to impress the world, Deuteronomy, if this is straight from Deuteronomy 4, if you want to follow his word, that's how you impress them. Verse 4. For Christ is the end, the telos of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. When Paul says that Christ is the end of the law, the word is telos. It means goal. It means the purpose, the goal of something. Christ isn't the termination of the law as if he came to abolish it. He said as much in in Matthew 5. Rather, Christ, he is the purpose of the law. The law's fulfillment, as in the law finds its purpose and usefulness completely and entirely on and in Christ. That's what he says here in Romans 10, verse 4. So for everyone who believes on Christ, again, we'll see more of that in the next section. For everyone who believes on Christ, Christ brings the purpose of the law to that person in a way that is different than had they not believed. Your relationship to the law changes when you come to Christ. It doesn't condemn you anymore. You've been raised up to new life. So you're not condemned. What are you? You stand in it. You now have a heart that can obey the law and then can see its implementation in the world. So uh, one thing too I will say is righteousness, he says here, that is this covenant membership is always then based on Christ who brings the law to a new and abiding pur- purpose for the believer. That's his, that's his emphasis. So just a few things what we should learn from the passage. For whatever reason, Christians have by and large been confused about the law of God and its purpose in the world. Many people are taught to believe that the law in the Old Testament was fine. Sure, it was fine. Some actually dare to say it was grotesque and oppressive. But, you know, sure, the law is fine, but obviously Israel, they couldn't obey it as a means of salvation. So therefore, Jesus came along to put a stop to that uphill battle. And I'll just say this type of thinking is rather sophomoric and underdeveloped, to say the least. Uh, I would argue blasphemous, actually, if we want to be frank. So the problem is never the law. Psalm 19.7, a great passage that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. That's its intention. But the problem was, and the problem remains today, man's handling of the law of God, which stems from man's disposition towards it in a state of unbelief. Okay, when, we, when we don't have a belief in the success of the gospel, what do we have? Well, look around you. When we don't have a belief in the success of the gospel, we have chaos. We have anarchy. We have lawlessness. We have... Um, um, bumbling fools running for office. That's what we have when we don't believe in the success of the gospel. So Paul's, Paul's concern here is that Israel had failed to see that the goal of the law was never themselves. Covenant membership with, with God in Israel was never based on obedience to the Torah. It was, it was grace through faith, and it continues to always be grace through faith. And it is grace through faith that puts the law in its proper place. Now, when Jesus came along, teaching and preaching and doing what he did, he didn't establish a new system of obedience to retrofit the old one. Paul's contention is that the coming of the Messiah was the climax, it was the purpose of God's redemptive history up until then. 
What's the purpose of uh, Israel enslaved in Egypt? What's the purpose of the Red Sea incident? What's the purpose of Adam? What's the purpose of Moses? What's the purpose of David? What's the point of the whole Old Testament? The point is Jesus. <laughs> you know, had, at, he could have just taken Adam and Eve out right on the spot and says, well, you sinned, you're dead. I guess we'll try it again as if it was the Matrix or something. And that's not what he did. He didn't do that because Christ needed to come and Christ needed to die. He needed to be raised. So that's part, of the, that's part of the purpose. So the purpose of the law had reached its goal in Christ, and as a result, membership based on faith became reestablished and made secure. It was always faith, but it was misused. It needed to be secured. Christ secures it. The likening of Christ's coming to that of the cornerstone is a tremendous, tremendous metaphor. Peter quotes the same passage as Paul, and Mark uses the same passage when he quotes it in Mark chapter 12, which we read earlier. In that passage, Jesus was the son of the landlord who was thrown out of the vineyard and he was killed. Jesus was the rejected cornerstone. And this rejection thus became a motif of interest for the Apostle Paul. Why had so many people rejected Christ? Why had so many of his fellow kinsmen rejected Jesus? Why won't they repent of their sin and believe? Any of you have friends that you wonder that? Why won't our nation repent and believe the gospel? Why? Why can't we get people in office that repent and believe the gospel? Why is that the case? The answer is here. Now, I'm going to say this, and it's going to be entirely offensive. Perhaps to some of you it shouldn't be, but it, it is offensive. Some people will not like this, but it's, it's what the Bible teaches. Christ was always supposed to be both the cornerstone and the stumbling stone. Why is that offensive? Let me explain. He was supposed to be both. Isaiah promised both. We get both. Christ is the cornerstone and he's the stumbling stone. So that's the judgment. What we're doing, when, when we're doing what we do here in Fauquier County and in Northern Virginia and preaching Christ, we readily acknowledge that for some, Christ will be the cornerstone upon which they will build their life in obedience to the law of God. We do, we do know that. We do know that for some, Christ will be the cornerstone. They will repent and believe the gospel. They will put their trust in him. They will build their life in accordance to what God demands and what God commands. But we also recognize that for others, Christ will be a stumbling stone. So the question is not if there will be a stone. The question is, which stone is he? Is he going to be the cornerstone of your life? Is Christ going to be the cornerstone of your family, your kids? Is he going to be the cornerstone of our county? That's the question. Or is he going to be the stumbling stone of your life, the stumbling stone of your family, the stumbling stone of your kids, and the stumbling stone of our county? So Christ is either going to be, these are the options, Christ is either going to be the foundation of a social order, the foundation of your life, the very thing that guarantees things go the way they're supposed to go when you obey him, or will he be the stone of stumbling, tripping you up? See, here's the thing. Either way, you have to deal with Christ. Either way, there's no option to walk around this stone. 
Either, either, either our county and unbelievers are going to deal with Christ as the cornerstone or they're going to trip all over him, but deal with him they must. And it's our job to make sure they're dealing with him and not so much us. Now, the issue of righteousness continues to come up in, in Romans, so I want to make sure that we deal with this. As one scholar put it, righteousness is the fulfillment of all legal and moral obligations. Righteousness is not an abstract notion, but rather consists in doing what is right and just in all relationship. The reason that we need Christ to be the goal of the law, the purpose of the law, is because Christ himself fulfilled all legal, all moral, and all covenantal obligations, all the while we kept falling short. When you were sinning, when you were rebelling against Christ, Christ was faithful. He was doing the righteous thing. When we were pursuing unrighteousness on our own terms, Christ was the faithful one. That's the gospel, right? This is why we have to deal uh, with the death of Christ. We need the death of Christ. Christ's blood covers our sins. But we also need his resurrection. Christ's resurrection, Paul said earlier in Romans, is for our justification, to be declared right, to be let go out of the courtroom based on the work of Christ. So it was Christ's obedience that came in when we disobeyed. It was Christ's perfect fulfillment that we need to apprehend by faith. So Christ on our behalf. That's the four words of the gospel. What is the gospel? Christ on our behalf. Kids, say it with me. Christ on our behalf. That's the gospel message. Think of Jesus' ministry this way. This stumbling stone come waltzing in... uh, I can't get the image of Conor McGregor waltzing into the ring. Uh, um, (laughs) I don't know why. But the stumbling stone, this is Jesus' ministry. The stumbling stone waltzes into Zion, right? Waltzes in there and said, hey, everyone, I am the new cornerstone and I'm building a brand new temple. And then everybody loses their mind. (laughs) You just cut at the heart of their ministry, I mean, that was the heart of Israel's ministry, was the temple. God's presence was there. And Jesus says, no, actually, I'm that now. I'm the tabernacle. I'm the temple. And this temple you see is actually going to be ripped down in about 40 years, which did happen. And now here we are, right? That's Jesus. The religious leaders, they lost their collective minds at this stuff And the only one who could have said such a thing is the only one with the authority to do so. And we find in the Gospels that this quickly turns into this showdown between Jesus and the leaders. But but underneath the showdown is this deeper reality. Who is the end of the law? That's what's happening. Who has the authority? Remember, the scribes and Pharisees kept saying, who is this guy? He teaches with authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. Who is the end of the law? Who is the goal of the law? And who gets to say? Who is the purpose, the point, the expression of the law? Is it you or Christ? This was essentially why Christ was and is so controversial. Every man, woman, and child, all of you in this room, kids, all of you are made in the image of God. You're made in the image of God. And because life is a gift, either we're either going to steward that gift or we're going to squander the gift. And the difference depends on what you do with the gift. Will we find ourselves to be the goal? I mean, selfishness runs rampant today. 
It's always ran rampant. It's not like new. Oh, did you hear that people are being selfish today? As if that's like a news thing worthy of the news. Are we the goal? If so, we'll slip into a progressivism, which ends up, of course, going off the edge of the cliff. If Christ, though, is the purpose and the goal, we, and we build our lives on him, the solid rock, the cornerstone, that's the options. But those are the options. But everyone will build their life on something. So what does it mean to build your life on the cornerstone? And we'll end here with a, few more, a couple more thoughts. First, Christ is the second Adam. He came to gather us as living stones, and he gathers us up and assembles us as his temple. We are the people of God. We are the temple of God. We, the people of God, are given the Holy Spirit as God takes up residence in us. But this doesn't mean we get comfortable and we relax and call it it good. We are, um, Sunday at Elijah says, God carriers. It's a cool phrase. God carriers. We're kingdom carriers. We're ambassadors. We're heralds, right, of a new kingdom. And we are designed to do something in the world. It also means, second, that Christ's dedication of his temple people means that we are on a trajectory of establishing the righteousness of God in the world, not trying to establish our own. So instead of tripping over this cornerstone, Christ became your cornerstone, and your life is called to be established in him. And this means that there's no boasting in your life. There's no boasting in yourself. There's no establishing your own rival temple. Christ was given for you, church. What Paul emphasizes, and this is something we have to simply get straight in our heads, is that Jesus Christ walking on earth as the Son of God is Israel doing what Israel was always supposed to do. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what, 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 um, what God's law is like, then look no further than Christ. Look no further than Christ. Jesus was and is the Israel of God. He is the faithful Israel of God. And his actions tell us what it means to pursue the Torah, not based on works, but by faith. Christ sets the boundary marker in your life. Any decision you have to make, go to Christ. He sets the boundary marker. It is Christ who demonstrates what, faith, what faithfulness looks like. Do you want to be faithful to Christ in your life? Then look to Christ. Look at his faithfulness. Do what he did. Model your life after him. It is Christ who became sin so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He is the cornerstone. He is your cornerstone. And he is your firm foundation. So don't work against what he is building. Don't try to undermine what he is building in you and around you. Embrace him, walk with him, and do as he does. Christ the cornerstone is yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we come to you in, in gratitude for what you are building in this world. We definitely know that it's tempting to look around at the headlines at the chaos that seems to be happening. And it's tempting to look at that and think that whatever's being built, these nefarious structures of oppression and statism and humanism and a whole bunch of other negativisms, whatever's being built, it's tempting to look at that and think that 
perhaps Christ won't win. Perhaps what he's building in his church and in his people isn't good enough. But we know that that's a wrong-headed belief. Father, we come to you today and ask that your spirit would um, indwell us in a way that perhaps we've never known before, that our consciences would be awakened to the truth of your word, that, that we would truly rest in this foundation stone. Father, we want to see our county changed, that you would be the cornerstone of our county and our nation in this world. So as we consider our responsibilities and what we have to do, all of the demands of life, our families, our kids, and, and all of it, I, I pray that you would help us take a deep breath and may we exhale knowing and trusting in your sovereign plan. So we ask this today in the name of Christ our King. Amen.